Lord Jesus, we are amazed that we dare come into your presence. You are the Holy One of God. You are the King of all of this life, all of the universe, everything we can imagine. And yet, we are able to come before you and you invite us into your presence. And Lord, we pray that this morning, as we look into your word, we would be willing to not only open our hearts, but offer our hearts to you as an offering of service for all of the love and everything you've done for us. You are the King of Kings, and we thank you. Amen. Well, there's a story told of a mom who was getting her son ready for uh, the first day of school. First day of school is a special thing, right? And this mom had everything scripted really well, uh, kind of like uh, giving him an idea of what was going to happen when he got on the playground and then going into the classroom and filling the uh, desk full of supplies and everything. And so um, it was a big day. And she was really anticipating him coming home. And so when he came home, she sat him down and she said, so what happened? And just like his mom, he was really prepared for an answer. He, he talked about, you know, meeting kids on the playground and how he made a couple of friends and then going into school and how impressed he was at how the, the hallways looked and everything. And then his desk and he described the desk and how he put all of his stuff in the right places. Rather military little young man. And, um, mom was just really, really happy that he had had such a good day and she said, just wait until tomorrow. And he goes, what? I've got to do that again? <laughs> that surprise really is there for a lot of us. I remember hearing a uh, story by Howard Hendricks one time about when he was at Wheaton. They had a guy there who was a pretty good mile runner. And uh, Hendricks in his younger years apparently was a little bit athletic. And he got out on the track and he says, hey, Joe, erase ya. And so he got on the track with Joe, and they're running around the track, and Hendricks kept right up with him for that first lap, and then basically collapsed, and Joe turned around and said, hey, there's three more. Well, I think sometimes in our lives, uh, we wish the race were a little shorter, um, but there are things in this life and following the Lord Jesus that we just... I mean, it's just part of life, and we have to be able to do them not only one day and not only one year, but continuously, and the Lord helps us do that. But we're looking today at um, Jesus' orientation to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, And I think I should be able to make this work here. There we go. Lights, action, camera. And what Jesus is going to be doing and what we're going to be talking about is he is giving his disciples, he's newly called the twelve, and he's sitting them down, and he's not telling them everything, but he's giving them sort of the broad strokes of what it is going to mean to follow him. And that's obviously for all of us good information. Uh, What would it look like? And I have described the first part of what we're going to be talking about today are as Jesus talking to them about attitudes of life. Now, you know, if you go to certain places, they'll talk to you about having a Christian world or um, uh, world perspective. 
And I really, in a way, I, I kind of understand what they mean. There's probably a Muslim world perspective, and there's probably a Hindu world perspective. There's probably a communist world perspective. But we're not talking about any marketplace. What we're talking about is reality. And uh, God is very gracious, but he doesn't negotiate with reality. And what we're talking about really is, what does God have to say about life? And how much in tune with that do we want to be? Do we actually want to be in shape to follow Him? Were we expecting uh, this whole thing with, with, you know, this whole thing to be about church, or were we expecting that it would just be a short little jog around the track? And I think in following the Lord and what He says, and what we'll see that in the Sermon on the Mount, and in what we talk about today, that. Um, Jesus is wanting to equip us for a lifetime on this earth of following Him. And it doesn't mean that we can't do it. I, I'm, I'm sure that the, the um, simplest person uh, in any country can do exactly what Jesus wants them to do because so much of the time it's just really a matter of the heart. Are we willing to do it? And really, I guess the question is, is He that, is he that important to us? So, um, as I go into this, I'm going to, um, my whole approach in looking at the Sermon on the Mount um, and uh, what I have done in the life of Christ is I followed Dwight Pentecost. He, had, he has a book called the, uh, the Words and Works of Jesus Christ. And basically what Pentecost does is he takes all four of the Gospels and puts them together in a certain like chronological order. And so I have developed for myself what I call the conglomeration Bible or the conglomeration gospel, where I've taken all of his notes and kind of tried to fit them in and make sense of it. And you're going to see some of that today because there are two writers, two gospel writers who write about the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew and Luke. And Mark doesn't really refer to it and John doesn't refer to it. And so it's kind of like putting them together and one of the intriguing things in all of this is the differences. Um, sometimes they make us squirm a little bit that if two writers are talking about the same thing, how come they use different words? But actually, uh, it's, there's kind of a brilliance. And I'll just start like, I'll start with this. Every word in the Bible is not only breathed out by the Holy Spirit, but it was intended by God, to be written down and to make sense to us. There are no accidents in the Bible. Now, the one thing that you understand if you read the Gospels is that Jesus gave these messages repeatedly. Not just on the Sermon on the Mount, but when He took the boys out and He was preaching, He would use the same illustrations. He would say many of the same things. And you see that, and you see actually how He made little variations from the time. For example, uh, one, one great thing is, or one obvious thing is the uh, Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. Just before his death, the disciples come to him again and they say, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. And he gives them the Lord's Prayer, but it's a stripped-down version. Why could he give them the stripped-down version? Because they had probably heard it a hundred times. They knew how to fill in the blanks. So in putting these, uh, uh, putting Matthew and Luke together, what you have is you have Matthew who wrote in Aramaic and then translated into Greek. And anybody who's worked in two languages know, 
knows how much fun that is. The word choices you have to make going from one language to another. And then Luke came years later and he went and he personally investigated and he talked to people. And he said, okay, what was it like up on the mount when you were there? What did he say? And who knows? It could have been Mary that he asked. It could have been one of the other apostles. I don't think there was an Apostle Joe, but you know these other guys that you hardly hear of, Thomas and, and James the son of Alphaeus. Who knows where he got his information, but these guys were there. And Luke wrote those words down. And what you have then is you have stereo. And, I, and you'll see they blend perfectly. And God superintended in His infinite wisdom that all of these words would be important. I know as a seminary student, I struggled with that sometimes. But it all makes amazing sense. Now, the other thing I want to mention before I uh, get into this is um, there is a bit of thought and confusion with regard to the kingdom of God. And the reason I say that is um, oftentimes the Sermon on the Mount will be taught as rules for the kingdom of God. I think these are rules for all of us. These are not rules for us, but they're, like I say, Jesus' orientation to his disciples. Um, Back uh, pretty much for most of church history, there was no nation of Israel. After 70 A.D., when when Jerusalem was destroyed, there was no longer a nation of Israel. It was Palestine. It was whatever. Um, The prevailing church opinion then at that time was that the church had taken over for Israel, that we inherited all the promises, that somehow we were the kingdom of God. The Roman church taught that we were the kingdom of God on earth, and it it taught that there was not going to be a millennial kingdom that somehow the millennium, and I don't really understand this completely, was being played out on earth through the church. Well, um, it made sense to them because there was no nation of Israel. But what it did was it did a lot of harm to the Scripture because anybody reading the Old Testament now knows that like, you can hardly read a chapter in Isaiah without it talking about the millennial kingdom. And wait until we get to Ezekiel. And what was happening was um, interpretation of the Bible was actually damaging itself. And people didn't know what to do with that. Well, then in the 1820s, there came a movement. Now, there had always been this undergirding of, of people believing that there would be a millennial kingdom. But in the 1820s, it kind of sprang to life. And it kind of sprang to life through... Our heritage, the Plymouth Brethren, Uh, John Nelson Darby and some of these other men, they looked at the scripture and they said, no, wait a minute, right on the surface of the Bible, you can see that there are different ways that God worked with people. Uh, We call it dispensationalism, different economies. But this isn't something that are that's concocted. It's just there. There's a difference, for example, between before the fall and after the fall, right? You would all agree with me on that, I hope. Um, And then there's a difference between before Jesus and after Jesus, right? I mean, that's a pretty obvious one. It's right on the pages of the Bible. Those are three dispensations. You may not know this, but Dallas Seminary only makes their professors agree that there are three dispensations. They're right on the front of the Bible. But what dispensationalism did seeing the Bible as God's 
um, program of redemption developed and how he worked with people in different times, what that did was it brought a different understanding to the kingdom of God. It brought a different understanding to how God was working with people, what the content of faith was, and that God was working very patiently. And so what it did basically in the 1820s is biblical interpretation exploded. And when it exploded with a plain common sense view of even prophetic literature, is it opened the Bible for hundreds of thousands of people and it caught fire in the United States. Moody went over and Moody, uh, he was an evangelist actually in England, and he came in contact with the brethren and he loved this stuff. C.I. Schofield um, wrote, and Schofield wasn't even brethren, but C.I. Schofield wrote the Schofield Bible with all the notes. Do you realize that that Bible was edited by a brethren woman who had an outstanding understanding of the Bible and theology? It was published. The first publishers of the Schofield Reference Bible were... I, I can't even say their name, the Lozenger brothers or something like that. What, these, you know who they are, the Brethren Publishing House. The point was, and this is where I'm actually getting to, it changed the face of our understanding of the millennia, millennial kingdom and our interpretation of the Bible and prophecy, especially in this country. And that is a... Amazing heritage. Now, this is what I will say on the other hand, and that's why I'm actually doing this little regression here, or digression. Um, as a result of it, we started interpreting everything according to dispensations and according to these rules. And there are some places where we just maybe went a little overboard. And, and I've heard some teaching and preaching on the uh, Sermon on the Mount that really is a little bit overbaked. However, here's the deal. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, right at the beginning, it talks about the kingdom of God. So that's fair to at least talk about that. God has a kingdom that is coming. And that kingdom is now, but that kingdom is also coming. And how do you put all of those different things together? The Pharisees in uh, Luke uh, chapter 17, they come up to Jesus and they say, what are the signs of the kingdom coming? And Jesus uh, says to them, well, it's not going to be like, you know, it's over here or it's over there. He says, actually, the kingdom is among you and they kind of walk away from him. And Jesus begins to teach his disciples about a second coming. The point being at his second coming is when the kingdom comes. And it will become anchored upon the earth, but it does exist. We, you could say the kingdom of God exists, but not physically on the earth. And here's the thing. Whatever aspect it has for us right now, Jesus is in control, but there are a lot of other things going on. And our behavior right now is important. Our behavior right now is not going to be what our behavior is going to be like during the millennial kingdom. But right now, Knowing that it is coming, we need to behave and have a certain mindset. In Matthew, 10, uh, Matthew 6, verse 10, it, Jesus, um, in the Lord's Prayer, he says, Thy kingdom come, 
thy will be done. Obviously, the kingdom is coming. But Jesus is still seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then you get to uh, Revelation chapter 12, and it says, this is an angel saying, now is the kingdom. But even in Revelation, there's so little bit of time before it, Jesus comes back and it becomes bolted into our world. And he sits on the throne in Jerusalem. And the reason this is important, I guess, is to understand that although the kingdom is coming um, and will come, and that will be amazingly wonderful, uh, Jesus will say something in the sermon that will sound like, um, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Well, the kingdom of God will belong to everyone who belongs to Jesus Christ. So what is Jesus saying there? And what I'm going to do is use another scripture to kind of um, help here, and that's in Luke 9.62. You don't have to turn there. It's one of the impulsive followers. He says, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, but first let me go back and uh, say goodbye to my family. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. So, that word that Jesus used there means suited for use, ready for use. He's not saying that this guy couldn't get into the kingdom of God if he went back to his family. He's saying there is a certain commitment on our parts to really be suited for this kingdom, to do the work, to run the race, to endure. And we need to have that, that mindset, that willingness to sacrifice, that willingness to endure. And so he, I don't think he's telling this guy that you're not going to get into the kingdom if you go back. He's just saying that you may not be ready to do the work that's necessary to really get the job done. And I think that's what Jesus is pretty much telling his disciples. We need to have our hearts in tune with the present reality in the kingdom of God. So, let's take a look here. Now, the red is Matthew, and the blue is Luke. And it says here, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... So, the point being here is what Jesus is saying isn't just general teaching. This is specifically for his guys. And this isn't the whole thing, but this is trying to orient them and let them know, if you are going to make an impact as my disciple in what is happening right now on earth, these, this is how you need to look at reality. This is how your life needs to conform to the present reality on this planet, or if you will, of the kingdom where it is right now. And so Jesus says, blessed are the poor. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you that hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, the idea of poor in spirit is a sense of being um, broken and desperate. 
That is what Jesus is trying to convey here. He isn't talking about your economic status. He's talking about your spirit being needful. Your spirit um, uh, being somehow diminished. Uh, Understanding what is happening in this world and sensing the weight of it. And then he goes on, and this is what Luke adds that is really kind of interesting. Luke adds the word now. Blessed are you that hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. In other words, it's this idea of this is the world that you live in. This is what is happening right now. And I, you know, I mean, you guys all understand, right? What is happening in the world? And Jesus is saying, okay, so here it is. Are you poor in spirit? Do you sense the lack? Do you feel the drain? Are you willing right now to go hungry? Are you willing to um, hunger now for the kingdom of God? Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom. He's saying if you sense that, if you feel that, you're, you're ready. You're ready to run. You're ready to endure. You're ready to do whatever it takes right now to do this. We live in a special time, folks. What we are experiencing right now will not be what will be during the Millennial Kingdom. But, are we willing to curb some of our appetites? Are we willing, is there anything in our life that makes us want to wake up a little earlier or work a little harder or say no to that because of what's happening now? For the sake of Jesus being his disciple. So, in the Old Testament, you've got Elijah and Elisha, right? Elijah was the guy who offered the northern kingdom uh, the ability to come back to God, and they refused that. So then comes Elisha, and Elisha is kind of the closer. Now, there are some people who get saved in all of that, but the offer is no longer being made. Individuals are being saved. These are dark days. Part of Israel is going to be taken into captivity. This is awful. And then one day, Naaman the Syrian shows up. And Naaman comes, and he, and he says, I need to be healed. And you know the story. Elisha tells him what to do. Go down to the River Jordan. Dip yourself seven times and everything. He does it, and he's saved. Now, this is a huge miracle. Jesus almost gets himself killed for recounting this in his hometown. This is a huge miracle. It doesn't change Israel because they're dead as a doornail anyway. But it's amazing, right? And... Uh, Naaman the Syrian, he comes, he comes to Elisha and he says, wow. He says, oh, I know now there is no God but in Israel. There's nobody in Israel saying there's no God but in Israel. But Naaman the Syrian saying it. And then he says to Elisha, I want to give you gifts. And he opens up the whole store. There's gold in there. There are, there are tuxedos in there. There are iPhones in there. There are flat screens in there. And Elisha says, no, I don't want any of that. Naaman packs up and he takes off. But Gehazi, or Gehazi, his servant thinks, we're going to let this Gentile get off the hook? There ain't no way. So he runs after him and says, yeah, whoa, whoa. three guys just showed up. And they, yeah, let's see, i got a list here. Okay, we need three iPhones. We're going to need at least one flat screen. And you got, yeah, bars of gold. We'll take those two. And he grabs them and he takes them home and he stows them. And then he goes back to Elisha. And Elisha says, Gehazi, where were you? Ah. He says, wasn't I standing next to you when you stopped this chariot? 
And Elisha says something really interesting. He says, is this the time to build houses and to plant vineyards? And the answer is, was, no. And I think for the sake of the kingdom of God, we need to be willing. And, you know, and I'm not really, I'm not a drastic guy. I am not a drastic guy. I'm not telling you to sell everything and give it to the pastors of this church. Although, no. Um, no, but I'm just saying, you know, is a spirit allowed to speak into your heart and say, you know what? It's worth me doing a little more for the sake of my Lord Jesus Christ because of the present reality. You look at Paul. I mean, I love this guy. He's, he's the um, world's worst advertisement for being a joy, a joy in Christianity. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We're ill-clad and buffeted and homeless and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become and are now as refuse of the world. The off-scourging of all things. Huh. I'll sign up for that. Not. But that, I think, is what Jesus is getting to here. He's saying, look, guys, if you're going to make an impact for where we are right now, are you willing to be poor in spirit? Are you willing to be hungry now? And some of these guys were. Blessed are you that weep now. It's interesting that Luke is the one who puts the word now in there. For you shall laugh. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And again, what Jesus is saying here is he he doesn't want us to look unjoyful. I mean, there should be joy in knowing Jesus, right? But it's the idea that there is something really to weep about in this world. Are we willing to be a little bit distressed because of what is happening? Because if we are, the end of that will be, there will be a great deal of joy because of the work that we've done. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And what I think of with this is Jesus in in Isaiah 53. It says, He shall see the, the fruit of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. When Jesus looks down and he sees us, that he was, he was willing to die for us. He sees the fruit of the travail of his soul. And he's satisfied. And I think that's exactly what this is saying here. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I know meek rhymes with weak, but that's not what it means. You've probably heard that definition. It's controlled strength. It's the ability to knock them down and you don't do it. And the best example I have, I mean, you see it with Moses, meekest man alive at that time, but you see it with Jesus. Jesus could have pulverized those guys, spitting at them, pounding things into his body. He could have destroyed them, but he controlled his strength. I remember one professor at Dallas saying that, when during Jesus' trial and everything he went through, the only person 
who had a grasp on their emotions was Jesus. And He did it for us. You could push your way. You could make sure that you get what is coming to you and get your rights. But for the Kingdom of God, for what Jesus is doing on earth right now, I think He's saying to His disciples, are you willing to do this? And some of His disciples did. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You know, uh, righteousness kind of has, uh, it's, it's almost becoming uh, a religious dirty word, you know. It's like, oh, you're so righteous. You're, yeah, yeah, you righteous people over there. Well, here's the deal. Righteousness means following a standard. Okay? I would dare to guess that everyone who came here this morning came here righteously. But I don't know. So how many people drove up on the sidewalk on the way to church? Anybody? Thank God, no hands. How many people just roared through stop signs? I mean, nobody's looking, right? You drove to church according to a standard. I mean, you know, somebody comes in and says, Hey, I got to church without driving up any sidewalks. You know, we go, Oh, check your license. No, it just means following a standard. You know, but, but God, you know, he's, he's into all these standards. Standards aren't any fun. You've got to live outside of the standards to really get the gusto out of life. Right? Really. All it's saying is that this person wants to see what God says be acted upon. I grew up where I heard my mom crying. Far too often. I saw grandparents and people that were close to me screaming at the top of their lungs, acting in ways that even I as a young child knew were wrong. I saw pain. I saw hopelessness. My second sister died when I was eight. Basically because my mom was abused by my dad because he didn't want a second child. Yeah, but let's live outside the lines. That's where the fun is, right? Wouldn't it be great if people would just do what God says? Wouldn't that be just great? Doesn't your heart ache to see something like that? Because here's the, the news, folks. There are people right now who are dying because of that. There are people right now in other places, even around us, but just just look at the whole world, who are hopeless because God's simple standards of doing right and wrong are just being completely ignored. And they're hopeless and they're dying and they have nothing. And so, to have a heart that hungers and thirsts for righteousness, I think that would be a good thing. I was going to use the example of... uh, King Josiah on this, but I'm going to just skip that. He's one of those guys. Blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. That's what Jesus says. I mean, He says that real time to His disciples. You know, if you give even the least one of these dinky people, Daniel Lopez, who believes in me, a glass of water, why, God will not forget to give you your reward. Mercy. 
That's a, that's a big one during our time. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That sounds religious again, but, you know, I, I gave this a lot of time and I thought about it because I don't think I'm pure in heart at all, you know. And, uh, and don't be so smug, you're probably not either. But, you know, I was thinking about it, you know, and it's like, how many things stand in between you and God? You know, imagine that you had like a, you had a house with a huge picture window and you could see, you know, it would, the snow would fall and it would just be like pure and you would see the mountains and like, whoa, right? But you got to have an RV. Where are you going to park the RV? Well, we're going to have to park the RV out there. So you park the RV out in front of your picture window. Well, then you got to have a barn, right? Or you know, a big garage or something, you know, because we guys have to have our man cave and we put that out there too. And pretty soon you get the idea. You start accumulating so much junk that you can't see the mountains anymore. When it snows, you're not seeing like a, a pure, pristine field. You've just got that baby, got wrecked cars out there and the whole thing. You know, Texas, right? <laughs> you know, anyway. <clears throat> I think the pure in heart are those people who learn to keep their life very simple between them and God. There's not a whole lot that stands in between. And here's the thing. How many of you can be sure every day you're hearing the Holy Spirit speak to you? He does what? No, I'm not all charismatic. And the thing is, he can't speak audibly to me because I'm a Dallas guy. I signed a piece of paper that said I wouldn't let him. No. He speaks. But we got so much junk, so much noise, we can neither see nor hear God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Isn't that an interesting twist on, um, on, on witnessing? Hey, how are you doing with God? Not too well? Hey, well, let, let's talk about it. Let's talk, you know, you know, between you no, no, he's, he's okay. God's really willing to make it up. But, but, you know, like from your side, what are you willing to give? You know, you do like... Negotiation and counseling with these persons. Bringing people to peace with God is like being called a son of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted, persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the reason that I didn't break this one off is because it closes those blesseds, the Beatitudes. And the reason it closes them is because it says... For theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, here's the hard switch that Jesus is going to make right here in his talk. Are you being persecuted? You may not have the endurance. You may not be ready to be useful if you're not being persecuted. I know it sounds really weird, right? It's like, who wants to be persecuted, you know? But Jesus said it, and he's going to talk about it again. But he's going to say, if you're already being persecuted, you have the heart to be useful in what we need to do right now. None of us want to be persecuted. So therefore, this, oops, this stuff here really looks strange, doesn't it? Now, here's what's interesting. If you put Matthew and Luke together, they round each other out. Because, you know, it's like when you're a speaker, what you do oftentimes, and especially if you give the same message a lot, is you, um, you, re, you rephrase things, you reword things, you, um, um, yeah, that, that, I guess it's his own reword. But, you know, and so what Jesus says here, he basically says, 
It's almost the same thing, but it's different. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are you when men hate you and they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. You notice that the reward is in heaven? Because oftentimes that's where you see the reward. When we get to the kingdom, I mean, that'll, I mean that, all this kind of stuff will be past. But the reward will be immediate when we get in heaven. And the thing I want to say is this. Blessed are you when men revile you. Blessed are you when men hate you. And I think for the disciples... And you know that just from reading the Gospels. They were thinking that Jesus' popularity was just going to rise, and it was going to go to a white horse, and it was going to go to entering Jerusalem, and it was going to be him taking a throne, and it was going to be wonderful, and they would be his right-hand men. But for him to say, blessed are you when you get treated like this, that would have been a bitter pill to swallow. And I think as disciples following Jesus, we need to ask ourselves, are we willing? Are we willing to be persecuted for Jesus Christ because of his name? Now, I've had some of this stuff happen to me, but the bulk of it has come in a direction I was not ready for. Um, I was going to use the example of John 15, but it would just be reading it. But read John 15. It is the chapter... In the Upper Room Discourse on Bearing Fruit. And Jesus says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. Unless. Right? If you do that, nobody knows. But you know what that leads to. And the thing is, um, what is the definition of faith in Hebrews? Must believe um, that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. There's still rewards to be had. And the reward here is that if men, if your testimony is open enough and you are persecuted for it, there will be a reward. And then he says, but woe to you who are rich. And this is in Luke. This is exclusive to Luke. Woe to you that are rich. Woe to you, uh, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you that are full now, for you shall hunger. Woe to you that laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so the fathers did to the false prophets. But here's the deal. When you read that, you're tempted like I am, aren't you? To say, oh, these are, these are naughty people. These are evil people. And these are people who don't know Jesus as their Savior. I'm tempted to say that. You know, especially when it says, for you shall mourn and weep. But... You know what I think these can be? Because Jesus is talking to his disciples. Here's the deal. He's talking to his disciples. I think this could be the wood, hay, and stubble crowd. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 3? The foundation of Jesus Christ, but you build on it with wood, hay, and stubble. Here is the deal. As believers, I don't know about you, but I've, I've had my days where I thought about this. Who cares about... Jesus' judgment, the wood, hay, and stubble. You know why? Because I'm still going to wind up in heaven, right? It's like, okay, slap it, but I'm going to heaven. I don't think 
It's a slap. I think it's going to mean utter humiliation standing before the King of the universe, our Savior, who gave everything for us, and we realized we poured our life down a hole. We poured our life into something for us. We made sure, if you will, we got our best life now. Wouldn't that make a good title for a book? We got our best life now. We didn't, we didn't have to scrape by. We didn't have to sacrifice. We didn't have to have people say ugly things to us. We could be friends with everyone. And I think that is totally delusional. How can you understand what He did for us and turn around and try to live a life of avoidance and not be willing to pay? Not be, yeah, I mean, it's, it's returning love for love. It's not duty. It's returning love for love. And what does that mean? When you stand before Him and He looks at you and He says, Really? I gave you all these gifts. I was so ready to bless you in a way you could not even understand. And you did that? I think there is going to be... It says they are saved, but only as through fire. And I think that that moment is going to be a blazing, chilling moment of remembrance where people will admit that they didn't live for him. You are the salt of the earth. Now, Jesus has switched gears. So he, he, he talked about these, these hard attitudes. And then he's talking about the willingness to suffer. And now he's talking about who you are. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, what are you going to do about that, right? And the idea here, and I've seen, I read Pentecost on this, is just being salty, creating thirst. Right? But here's the deal. Here's what I want you to see. You. And you. Yes, who's ducking behind the pew? No. You are the salt of the earth. Isn't that awful? I mean, that, what a, it's like a privilege, but did I want that one? You are the salt of the earth. Oh, it gets worse. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. I mean, imagine him telling these guys, the twelve and the, the other herd of disciples, you are the light. No, you go to Jesus. No, you are the light of the world. And he's saying here, I'm not lighting you up so you can go hide. People need to see this. And then right at the end, that they may see your good works and not, they're not salvific, but it's the result of us knowing Jesus Christ. See your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You know, the, the, um, the small groups are going to be going to doing the book of Titus. Now, the thing that is conspicuous by its absence in the book of Titus is sharing the gospel. But look how often it says being ready to do good works. And this isn't doing good social works. The, the point being is that you have your radar set in your neighborhood, right? You have your radar set at work. Who is in need? Who is somebody who you can tell is somebody who needs to be talked to or they need, to, they need this? And Edward is moved by seeing the plight of his neighbor and he makes a casserole. That might actually hurt his neighbor. But if his wife makes it, maybe that's even better. 
You work together as a team in your neighborhood, doing things so that the, the, as the Holy Spirit opens a door. But you've got to live that way every day, right? I didn't mean to say it. You probably make a good casserole. I don't know. But, but the point being is being ready for the sake of Jesus Christ to step into the life of another person. And what is going to happen? They will glorify your Father who is in heaven. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So, what Jesus is doing right now is he's just giving the guys the orientation. He'll be teaching them for the next year and a half, and it it will be hard and heavy. But right now he's just saying, if you're going to run the race with me, it would be good if your hearts were like this. Work on it. Um, he talks about their hearts. He talks about their willingness to suffer and who they are, who we are, belonging to Jesus Christ. And, you know, I'm, I would just end it like this. Um, you know, because we, we all, it, it's sort of like, I believe, help my unbelief. Um, I love Jesus Christ. I love Jesus Christ. But I feel the disconnect of, am I really willing to put it all on the line? And why would I put it all on the line? Because of dying people? Well, that, that would get you up maybe three out of five days in the week. Um, is it because of, uh, you know, heaven is counting on you? No, not really. That doesn't do very much for me. What about just simply your love for your Lord? See, that's where it all wells up. We're taking the kids, you know, into different places, the youth, different places. And what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news. What is the good news? First point, God loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his only perfect son to rescue you from your sin. And your sin is a big deal. And for that, he poured out his precious blood. And he rose again from the dead. And all of us who belong to him, who are willing to invite him into our lives, will live with his life for all eternity. And all we got to do is let him in. It begins with our love for Jesus. There's a story about a, a bunch of guys who were working on a railway, and um, as they were working, um, on the side tracks, a, uh, another train pulled up there. And it had to wait for another train to come the other way. And as they saw it pull by, they noticed that these were some nice-looking cars on this, on this train. And all of a sudden, the window comes down, and this guy pokes his head out, and he says, Joe, is that you? And Joe was the uh, foreman. And, yeah, he says, yeah, Bill, yeah, it's me. He says, come on in here. So while the crew's out there working, the foreman goes in the air-conditioned executive car, and he's in there for about 20 minutes, and he comes back out, and... The train pulls away, and these guys are, like, bewildered. He says, that was the vice president of the railroad. How did you know him? And he says, well, he says, you know, it just happens that 23 years ago, Bill and I started on exactly the same day. We were doing what you guys are doing without all the automated toys to do it. And they, they kind of look at each other, and they say, well, okay, so what happened? I mean... Why is he the vice president of the company and you're a foreman? And the guy got quiet for a second. He says, well, he said, 23 years ago, 
Bill went to work for the Union Pacific Railroad. He said, I went to work for thirteen twenty-three an hour. And I just need to ask you, what are you doing? Are you here for a group of friends? Are you here for a nice church? Or are you here for the king of the universe and are willing to follow him in whatever he asks you to do? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have given us um, everything. Everything that you were, you laid on the line. We read Isaiah 23 and we see what you sacrificed, what you allowed to take place to allow your body to be broken, to make yourself an offering of sin, for sin, to bear our iniquities. And you were crushed and you were spit upon in all of that, but that's what you needed to do. And you see the, tra- the fruit of the travail of your soul. And you are satisfied. And Lord Jesus, I think that there are many in this room who want to be just like you. Um, it, it's difficult for us because we're, we're afraid. We, uh, we hear so many siren songs from our culture telling us not to commit too much. We, uh, we don't want to endure hardship. But you know what? We want you. We want to see the joy of your smile. Uh, we want to see fruit. We want to see lives changed for your sake. And we want to do that out of love. We don't want to do it out of compulsion. We don't want to do it because it's, you know, churchiness or anything like that. I pray that you would overwhelm our hearts with who you are. And as we read your word, as we look at the Gospels, we are just totally overcome with you. Our loving, wonderful, majestic Lord and Savior. Amen.